This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm Michael Sears at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. We have a guest host, Dr. Sean Baker. My colleague at the Stockdale Center is talking with Senior Fellow Alvin Townley, also at the Stockdale Center. This is a series of podcasts around Homecoming 50. Sean and Alvin begin a series to talk about that homecoming, the trials and tribulations of the POWs, and their wives and family at home. And now, here's Sean. Welcome to our third installment with uh, Alvin Townley, the author of a great book, Defiant, the POWs who endured Vietnam's most infamous prison, the women who fought for them, and the one who never returned. Uh, third part in the series, the last time we talked about uh, basically the war efforts of the North Vietnamese and uh, uh, their, their efforts in, in generating what essentially was a propaganda front in that war. And in the first episode, we uh, talked with Alvin about the inspiration for the book, how it, how it came that he decided to write on this particular topic. This one, we're going to kind of do a deep dive into a, uh, uh, a uh, the American the Code of Conduct for Members of the United States Armed Forces, which played a prominent role uh, in the... Uh, uh, thinking of the POWs and the thinking of the U.S. government in light of events that had happened uh, in the, uh, both in the uh, Korean conflict and to a lesser extent during World War II, particularly in camps in the Pacific. Um, and uh, we're going to, I'm going to, we're going to allow Alvin to talk a lot about that code of conduct, how it came into existence, why it came into existence and how these men in the North Vietnamese, uh, prison system interpreted it. Now, in order to kind of set us up, both up, to be able to have this conversation and to set the audience up to uh, uh, appreciate um, sometimes the complexities of that uh, interpretation of that code, I think it uh, it will behoove us to endure, suffer through a a dramatic reading on my part. Uh, So I'm going to read the five articles of the Code of Conduct as it appeared uh, um, um, in uh, uh, Executive Order 10631, uh, instituted by President Eisenhower uh, after the uh, Korean conflict. And then we'll kind of launch in. I'm just going to ask you, Alvin, just to dive in there and start talking about aspects of this thing and how it was interpreted. So, uh, Article 1. I am an American fighting man. I serve in the forces which guard my country and our way of life. I am prepared to give my life in their defense. Article 2. I will never surrender of my own free will. If in command, I will never surrender my men while they still have the means to resist. Article 3. If I am captured, I will continue to resist by all means available. I will make every effort to escape and aid others to escape. I will accept neither parole nor special favors from the enemy. Article 4. If I become a prisoner of war, I will keep faith faith with my fellow prisoners. I will give no information or take part in any action which might be harmful to my comrades. 
if I am a senior, I will take command. If not, I will obey the lawful orders of those appointed over me and will back them up in every way. Article 5. When questioned, should I become a prisoner of war, I am bound to give only name, rank, service number, and date of birth. I will evade answering further questions to the utmost of my ability. I will make no oral or written statements disloyal to my country and its allies or harmful to their cause. And that I, I will never forget that I am an American fighting man responsible for my actions and dedicated to the principles which made my country free. I will trust in my God and in the United States of America. So that's the text. It is. You know, it's interesting. There are really two, uh, two elements of that that I think had particular relevance to the situation in the prisons of North Vietnam. And you know, first, there's a chain of command it talks about, you know, which was vitally important to the American POWs um, in the Hanoi Hills and, and all over uh, the network of POW camps there in North Vietnam, which amazingly were in communication with one another. Uh, so it was an extraordinary system the Americans developed um, to, to communicate and to empower different people to lead in different uh, situations in different geographies while also maintaining an overall chain of command. So it's just an incredible organizational effort and a wonderful example of, um, I'm sure, what uh, our Navy listeners would call Navy, Navy innovation. And I'm sure the other services would, would claim the same <laughs> level of innovation as well. Um, but uh, the other piece was the individual portion of this. So the code of conduct applying on a very individual basis, which, you know, while North Vietnam's uh, POW experience uh, as experienced by Americans was a very um, group experience in one way and another way, it was a very individual experience. I know it sounds strange to have both those experiences happening at the same time, but I think if you talk to the POWs, they'll tell you there was that strange uh, dichotomy or strange parallelism with uh, individuals versus a group there. But with individuals, uh, the code certainly governed them in their actions, particularly when they were in an interrogation room. And when you were in an interrogation room as a POW, you were always by yourself. And there was really no one there to coach you, no one there to monitor you. And so I think one of the really interesting things is the uh, degree of self-policing these, um, these POWs did and uh, the way they judge themselves, which I think in a lot, of a lot of cases was too harsh, and their fellow POWs had to remind them that, hey, you know, at some point, you know, everybody breaks. And I think every serviceman had to define for himself. And at this point, there were only men, so we can say himself, uh, in this situation at least, um, you know, what, what was honorable and what was uh, adhering to that code, because no one could he adhere to the letter of the code. So you know, each man had to make his peace with you know, what he was able to do. Yeah, that's an e excellent point. And uh, I, I think uh, one of the striking things in, in your book and in other books that uh, have been written on this and in actually uh, the writings of Admiral Stockdale is uh, the extent to which he, he kind of did had that, as it were, that two-edged sword with the code. Um, its requirements, or to use the language of Article 5 there, uh, as instituted by Eisenhower, the, the binding requirements, um, did lead to, I think you're, you're correct, a lot of perhaps too harsh judgment of self 
uh, on the part of individuals who were being purposefully uh, isolated as best as possible by yeah, the North the, Vietnamese. Yeah, right. The North Vietnamese were, yeah. um, in many cases, you know, veterans of this exact same prison, or at least the same prison yes. system. So they very much knew that prisoners that could communicate yeah. could resist much more effectively. And so if they could break down communication, if they could isolate individuals, they could, uh, to some degree, uh, make the American uh, system of command fall apart. Yes. And they, you know, they had some success there, but never really enough to um, to decapitate the snake, as, as one um, one POW put it. And yeah. uh, the, the extraordinary thing was, you know, the Americans would always um, have a have a chain. And so, you know, if uh, if uh, Robbie Reisner or Jim Stockdale were isolated or taken out of the game, then Jeremiah Denton stepped up. And if Jeremiah Denton was taken out of the game, then uh, Jim Mulligan or um, um, um Howie Rutledge or Harry Jenkins would step up, step yeah. up. And so it was just a, a rolling uh, set of leadership that North Vietnamese could never really get rid of. Yeah. And in fact, Stockdale put it that way. It's, it's a multi-headed snake. You cut off one head, the, the others will very quickly pop up. And what's yeah, really think, yeah, neat the, about, I think oh, yeah, go ahead. The, the way the Americans really had to get through the situation was to remember that they were not prisoners. They were not uh, war criminals. They were not victims. Yeah. They were American fighting men, as you said earlier, Sean, and they were doing a mission and they were still on their mission. They took off from their aircraft carriers or from their bases in Thailand and um, they were st- still on the same mission. And it was not uh, as short as they had anticipated and it did not go the way they anticipated, but they were still on that mission. And ultimately they were going to continue to execute that mission. And so they never let themselves think, think of themselves as helpless victims. And I think that made a yeah. big difference in their ability to, um, really maintain their sanity. And I think come through this ultimately when they came home, you know, 50, almost 50 years ago um, with a, a much better mill state than they might've had, um, had otherwise. But, you know, the other thing uh, when they were over there, they were trying to adhere to the code of conduct. Yes. They had, they had better memories than I, than I do certainly. And they could remember these, these words and these lines that, you know, committed them to memory and to their hearts. I think, you know, long before they were uh, shut down and they tried to stick to them and it became pretty clear fairly quickly, particularly, you know, after the fall of 1965, which is really when they kind of started, the North Vietnamese really started to implement harsher measures um, in terms of coaxing statements and things like that. But it became very evident that the, the code of conduct just wasn't really realistic. And uh, so I think the POWs pivoted and their, their leadership came up with a, alternate set of of uh, guidelines and uh, admiral stockdale and his leadership came up with uh, a couple different things and you know, the first was uh the acronym BACUS, and that really yes. kind of became a not a replacement but it's sort of a corollary that people could fall back upon and that would define what those ambiguous words in the military code of conduct meant in a tactical situation yeah and um, you know that was of course um and I'll let you explain it if you like, Sean, but it's uh, back us, B-A-C-K. Well, I, was, I, I actually I actually wanted to jump in since I read the <laughs> – I'm the one that read the Code of Conduct. I think it's only fair that you be the guy to, to explain back us. All right. Um, so go yeah, ahead. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so after you – know, this really, I think, evolved. I feel like it was 1966 or 67 when, the, when Bacchus kind of became the uh, – 
um, the the rule the or law of the land, so to speak, in, in the POW's territory. And uh, B stood for bow. So don't bow in public. You know, yes. we're you're fighting men. You're not victims. You're not prisoners. You're not sub, you're not subservient. You're American fighting men. Um, A is for air, and that really meant stay off the air. So um, you know, do do everything you can not to not to speak publicly. C stood for crimes, and it meant admit no crimes. Again, you know, this is Stockdale and Denton and Reisner telling their fellow POWs that you are not criminals. You are American fighting men and do not admit to any of the war crimes that you're being accused of. And um, K stood for kiss. So basically don't kiss up, don't curry favor and don't kiss them goodbye. Whenever it is that we leave, remember, remember how they treated us and don't, don't go soft there as you're walking out of the Hanover Hills. Now, of course they had no idea when they'd be walking out of the Hanover Hilton, but they never lost faith that they would leave at some point. They just yes. didn't know when. And then U.S. was a little um, addition that uh, the leadership made that stood for unity over self. And uh, you know, everyone has a lot of selfish motivations, particularly when they've been away from their family, when they hadn't had much communication with their family, when they're not eating well, when they're not getting exercise, when they're in poor health. The North Vietnamese had a lot of levers they could pull. They had a lot of leverage points over these POWs and you know, um, the leadership wanted to make sure that people remembered that um, there were going to be a lot of opportunities to help yourself in, in different ways. And you can always justify those sort of things, right? You know, well, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do that. But the, the unity of the group was so much more important than that. And uh, I think the POWs did a, an exemplary job of, of remembering that. And I think that's what let them get through. Now, the other, the other piece of this is kind of the, overarching, um, overarching message. And I'm, I'm an old corporate strategy guy, Sean. So this is something I really, uh, uh, hooked onto because their vision statement or their mission statement, um, I think was probably the vet, best mission statement I've ever heard and, uh, corporate or, or otherwise in its return with honor. And so it kept the, the men focused on the idea that, um, they would return, mm-hmm. Again, no one knew him. They would return, and they were going to do so with honor. And whether they were trying to follow the code of conduct, whether they were trying to follow the Bacchus directives, or t- trying to um, you know, exemplify um, keeping unity above themselves, they had to figure out what it meant when they were by themselves, when they were in those interrogation rooms, when they were one on one with their captors. They had to to figure out what they needed to do to square with their own honor. And someday walk off an airplane in the United States with their head held high and, they, and where they could tell their family and their friends and their fellow service members, I did my best and I kept my honor bright. And I think that um, overarching power of that mission statement, I think kind of made a, um, um, uh, I think helped, helped guide the men as they followed you know, those various levels of directives, the code of conduct and, uh, the Bacchus, um, the Bacchus piece. And of course, there's also the one other addition, which was, we all go home together. Yes. Had to remember a lot of little phrases, right. Um, but luckily they had plenty of time to, to commit them to memory, but we all go home together was the other piece of this. And, um, you know, the idea was that, uh, kind of, kind of along with unity over self, nobody was going home 
unless everybody was going home. Yeah. Uh, Alvin, you did a fantastic job, <laughs> not only talking about back us, but uh, uh, the return with honor being the, the mission statement that's very well stated. And uh, it, it brings to mind, uh, it's, I found it a very interesting part of In Love and War when uh, it's about, it is 1966-67, somewhere in there. Uh, Stockdale gets a roommate, Dave Hatcher, and they are in the process of formulating the back us um, uh, guidance. And he tells us in that book that he and Dave, he, he, he draws a parallel to the conversations they were having and the conversations they were having with people in adjacent cells using the tap code was a bit like uh, the job that the, the courts uh attempt to do when they interpret the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> so you have a, a code at a very high level of abstraction, and because it is at that level of abstraction, it, it, it can be close to being useless as a guide. That's kind of, you could, that's kind of putting it harshly, but that's kind of the way the Constitution is as compared with uh, individual uh, uh, judicial uh, determinations of what the Constitution requires. And that's the way they kind of thought of the code. It's a very useful guide. It's kind of a guiding North Star. It does delimit how we can behave. We cannot just simply think for ourselves. We cannot simply think of ourselves as victims. We are still in the fight. The phrase battle behind bars makes it very clear and that was used in more than one occasion to describe this situation. And the code of, uh, and the code also, um, makes it plain that the uh, chain of command still exists, not only within the prison, but between the prison and the United States uh, military forces. So that's kind of the general part of the guidance. And these guys had to do, as you well uh, described, uh, the hard work of interpreting this for their particular circumstance. And it's very interesting to see him uh, uh, describe that process in that fashion. And I also think you do a very good job of pointing out, I think, uh, kind of the wisdom behind the code itself in that um, these men discovered that if adhered to in a sincere manner and in, in, in the interpret interpretive, uh, interpretative uh, um, efforts are adhered to in a sincere manner, you end up returning people with honor. They can sincerely look in themselves and say, I did the best I could, not only to preserve my own moral integrity, but the well-being of the group as a whole. And that's something I think that uh, Eisenhower was very much concerned with due to behavior that had occurred during the Korean War, to some extent. Now, Stockdale says some of those reports were exaggerated, but there was no code of conduct in place at that time requiring people to behave as if they were in the chain of command and uh, uh, putting unity over self, for instance. So you had cases where uh, prisoners held by the Chinese and the Koreans were at each other's throats for food and, um, uh, and similar things happened in Japanese uh, run uh, prison camps during World War II. Um, so Stockdale was very well aware of these things and actually uh, wrote about it. And there's a actually a, a review of a book called 
Bililibid Diary by a Navy doctor who was a prisoner of war in that Japanese camp. And he had some very interesting things to say that about that, uh, wrote a short review on it. It says, we went from treating uh, POW populations as if they were groups of no, uh, civilians, no longer in the fight, no longer in the United States chain of command, to, with the code, insisting that they treat themselves as, as if they were still in the chain of command. And it ended up being to the betterment of uh, returning POWs uh, uh, in the Vietnam conflict. And I think, I think it's, a, it, it's testament to the wisdom of the code. Both the Japanese and the Korean prison camps, uh, they're often uh, evidence the same sorts of behavior. Where people weren't the American POWs up. in North Vietnam definitely did not uh, not profiteer off one another, and, no. and they really uh, worked worked together as a unit in a, in a very extraordinary way. I, you know, there were some conditions that probably lent themselves to that because they weren't uh, they weren't being starved, they weren't being treated horribly as a unit. There were individual instances, uh, a lot of them, but um, you know, people weren't starving, people weren't getting uh, you know. Um, treated as they were in the Japanese POW camps, for example, uh, which yeah. you know, is a horrible treatment of the, of the entire people um, uh, incarcerated there. Uh, so I think that the um, it was a much better environment for cooperation and yeah. take that environment and add to it a very effective leadership team. And I think you have the, um, the result and I think which you particularly see in the last couple of years of captivity when they were in uh, what was known as camp unity. Mm-hmm. Not everybody was in Camp Unity, but a, lo- a large portion a of, of the POWs were in Camp Unity there inside Wallow Prison. Uh, camp Unity, by the way, is now a high-rise hotel. So if you go to, if you go to Hanoi, um, you can see part of the Hanoi Hilton, um, yeah. the part uh, known as Little Vegas and New Guy Village. Um, and Room 18 and, um, and the Nobby Room were all still there. But Heartbreak Hotel and the, um, uh, the big rooms rooms one through seven uh, are all now um, gone. Yeah. But, but in those larger rooms, you know, there, there are people, you know, there are rooms with, you know, upwards of 50 POWs in them and they were, um, you know, free to be inside those rooms. And, um, you know, there was friendly rivalry among the different rooms, but there was certainly um, a lot of sharing and a lot of camaraderie. Absolutely. And a, a lot of uh, human beings, human being, human beings. It's, it's, kind of funny to read the accounts they will say you know uh, during the hardest of times when we, we were isolated from each other and having to communicate by a tap code or uh, lucky to have any communications for months even years at a time we became very tolerant of each other and uh, even when we had roommates you know a roommate would have a you know annoying habits and we just kind of tolerate that for a while and then <laughs> when they get into camp unity um Many of them say, you know, some of those old annoyances uh, resurfaced and we, we got way too sensitive to these kinds of things and would sometimes be at each other's well, throats, you know, so um, to speak. I had a, had a conversation with uh, Commander George Coker, who is one of the uh, POWs who I've gotten real, uh, pretty close with. And he was one of the youngest POWs when he was shot down. He shot down at age 23 yeah. in 1966. And George escaped. So if you read Defiant for no other reason, you should read it because you get to read about the escape of George Coker from uh, Hanoi, which is really extraordinary. 
It's just gutsy, if nothing yeah. else. Yeah. But George made the comment that, you know, um, if he and the 10 other guys who were locked away in the Alcatraz prison, which was really for the, the leading, the leading and, and most obnoxious POWs is how I would define that group. Uh, this is the, the highest ranking officers and the people that just the North Vietnamese did not like, like George Coker, uh, were isolated in, um, Alcatraz for you know, really two years in solitary cells. And, and, you know, George always said that particularly the Alcatraz guys, if they had gone from Alcatraz and their solitary cells back home, they, they would have had, um, uh, they would have had a lot of challenges in dealing with um, the fast change that came from being, you know, a, a POW under those circumstances to being a free citizen again. Yes. And, and the, the time in the big rooms, the time at Camp Unity really gave the American POWs time to decompress and just get used to being with people again, yes. uh, which turned out to be extremely valuable psychologically. I don't know if anyone realized that necessarily at the time. All the guys just wanted to get back home as quickly as possible. But that, you know, that cooling off period of a couple of years after they'd had such harsh and isolated treatment for a number of years, I think was actually um, in a way... Uh, valuable. Yes, I agree with that. And you're providing us with a great transition, Alvin, to our, our next episode. Uh, what I would like to uh, give you the opportunity to do next time is talk about these characters like George Coker, like the one who did not return Ron Storrs, and obviously uh, Jim Stockdale, Jerry Denton, and some of the others. You've had the opportunity, the rare opportunity, to meet a lot of these people in person, do in-depth interviews, not only with them, but their wives and their family members. I really would like to give you an opportunity next time to tell some stories in that regard. Tell us about your uh, relationship with George. And uh, um, I think that'd be a, a nice way to uh, wrap up the series and also humanize these heroes. Yeah, they I'd, are. I'd be happy to. Um, I'd, lo- I'd love to talk about those guys. And I'm actually working on an article for um, Tailhook Magazine right now about about that very aspect of, of the POWs and my relationship with them. So that'll be good for me to, to talk it out with you, Sean. I'll look forward to it. All right. Well, then that's what we'll do next time. And until next time, uh, I'm uh, Dr. Sean Baker. He's Mr. Alvin Townley, and this is Radio Stockdale. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts. 